Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will pick up the text in Genesis 25, starting in verse 29. We are right in the middle of the Jacob Esau, or we're not really in the middle, we're in the beginning of the Jacob and Esau account, and they have now been born, and we're actually in, I guess we're in the middle of Esau selling his birthright. And because we're choosing to look at this narrative from the perspective of what happens to Esau, we're looking at him overall as, you know, this whole narrative is discussing the selling of the birthright, and we see that he is a rather profane and worldly man, and that's how we have to see him. And that's how we approach the text as we looked at verses 27 and 28 in the previous episode, uh, because we're saying that a believer should not live like a profane person, and Esau is a profane person. So what do we see a profane person, a worldly, a godless person doing in the world through the life of Esau? Well, the first thing we saw in verse 27 and 28 is that a profane person lives a life of worldly freedom that is pleasing to the natural man. Now, as we move on to verse 29 down through 33, we see that the profane person acts on impulse for the gratification of the natural appetites. Let's go ahead and read the text. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then, uh, well, we'll stop there. Uh, in verse 33. So the profane person acts on impulse for the gratification of natural appetites. First thing we want to notice here then is that the profane person is the victim of his own personal appetites. Verses 29 and 30, Jacob is cooking stew. Esau comes in the field, in from the field. He's exhausted. He now wants that. He's just going off of his raw appetites. By the way, we get a little warning against this in places like Proverbs 23, 2. If you are given to gluttony, put a knife to your throat. Now, back to the text, the phrase here is more accurately brought across this way. Let me gulp down some of this red stuff, red stuff. The picture is one of a wild and blustery man pointing and gasping, red stuff, red stuff, explaining that he is faint from hunger. Like, hopefully you get that. I'm, you know, I'm not an actor or anything, but he's just, he can't even really bring together a cogent sentence or phrase. He's just pointing and shouting, red stuff, red stuff. And he is absolutely overcome and driven by his own appetites. He is the victim of his appetites. It's likely that he would have come in after a long day and was met with no success. That might be part of the reason that he's doing this. He's been out. He's been moving a lot. He has not uh, caught anything. He's not killed any game. And he's completely famished. 
Now, there is an overdramatic reaction for sure. I think that on the part of Esau, he is definitely overreacted. But there's also the fact that Jacob surely had observed this before and was planning on taking advantage of it, which he did. He'd probably seen Esau do things like this in the past. Now, just from a practical standpoint, I don't care how busy you are or how much you've worked in a day, and I get it. I know that there's a lot out there that people can do. I have friends who do incredible, intense exercise, you know, ultra marathons. Not, it's not just enough to do marathons. They do ultra marathons. Anything beyond a 26.2 mile marathon is an ultra and, you know, a 30 mile run or a 40 mile run. That's an ultra, but so is a 50 or a hundred mile. They just do crazy things. And these things take hours and hours and hours. Yeah, I know they're burning a ton of calories and they're they're very hungry at the end. But I also know, physiologically speaking, that no one is going to die after missing one day of food. I don't care how much you've worked. I don't care how much you've exercised. You will not die after one day of food and not having food for, let's say, a whole whopping, I don't know, 14, 16 hours is probably what he's gone here, maybe 18 You know, I don't know if this is at the height of summer when days are longer and, you know, but he's probably not out before the sun is up and staying out after the sun has gone down. You know, it's hard to say, but regardless, we can go a long time without food. We see fasts in the Bible and we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see them called for and proclaimed. We see fasts in the New Testament uh, and we see in a couple instances long fasting. And that's not just a a miracle. It is very possible and repeatable today. And we're not going to sidetrack on that so much, but it does help us to get a little bit of a sense here because this really has to do with reigning in one's passions. Esau comes in from the field. He's exhausted. He's just really tired and all he wants is food. And he just feels overcome by that. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, there are times when I don't want to do something because the idea of getting up and doing something, if I'm extremely tired after a very long day, just sounds awful. But the fact of the matter is, if I don't do it and I don't get up, then the thing won't get done. And, and if that thing that needs to get done is food because I want food, then I'm not going to eat, right? But I'm not going to die. That, that's the other part of it. So I can appreciate his exhaustion. I can appreciate his work all day long but he is totally overcome by his passion. And herein is the lesson for us that we should not be the victim of our own personal appetites. We are not the slave or the, you know, subject to our body. It should be the other way around. Our body should not have mastery and control over us, but we put our body in subjection to us. In fact, Paul actually makes this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and he talks about being disciplined at, you know, towards the end of that chapter. And he, he says in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, or as the King James says, I put it under subjection, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There is something to be said about personal discipline. Uh, We see it said explicitly there in the text of 1 Corinthians 9.27, and we see it emerge as we're reading 
this account of Esau. And it's, it should stand, most of this narrative as we work through it should stand as a warning to us. This is not who you want to be. You do not want to live a life of worldly freedom that is only uh, pleasing to your natural man and is setting you up so that you are not in a position uh, to submit yourself before God. And we said and we noted earlier that nothing necessarily was inherently evil about his life, but he was not putting himself in a position uh, to subject himself to God. Now we see that he is absolutely the victim of his own personal appetites. He's acting on the impulse for the gratification of his natural appetites, and that is contrary to Scripture. So practically speaking, then, what do we do? Well, we have to be able to identify what our natural passions and desires are, and we have to be able to differentiate between those things and you know, the spiritual, but there's a spiritual aspect to our discipline. So all of that is, is very important. And then when we, we look at what our body requires physically, we have to learn to put it under subjection. We say no to our body and yes, when we decide to not the other way around, we do not want to be victims of our own personal appetites because certainly Esau was. But then we also see, we're still looking under this idea that the profane person acts on impulse for the gratification of the natural appetites, but we see this in verses 31 to 33, that the profane person relinquishes things of value for the satisfaction of his appetites. So not only is he acting on them, but he's being foolish. He really is. He's relinquishing things of value for the satisfaction of something that is only temporary. Listen again. Not only will you not die, no matter how much you've worked in that one day. Now, you know, extend it out three, four, five, eight weeks. Okay, now now we have something to talk about. And, uh, you know, with regard to food, as long as you have water, uh, you can almost go on indefinitely, uh, you know, there... And I'm not trying to stir up a hornet's nest here, but there's a lot of medical data to back up the fact that you can go long periods of time with much less food than you ever thought you could. And by the way, if you want some anecdotal evidence of that, why don't you read Alexander Zolzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago uh, in the account of his decades that he spent in the Russian Gulag, which is like an internment camp where people didn't just go for a year or two. They spent decades, some their entire lives, And it was cruel, it was inhumane, it was torturous, very, very little food for years, years. So again, uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to rabbit trail too much, but the point is, is not only was he not going to die, but then he was foolish because then he considers his base passion that he's feeling. His stomach feels like it's, you know, it's rumbling. We actually know that there's a scientific name for that. That sensation of hunger is called ghrelin. It actually passes with time. Again, I, I guess I'm rabbit trailing a little bit on this. Uh, but that sensation, that physical sensation of hunger where you say, I'm hungry. If you don't eat, that sensation that is produced by this chemical reaction called ghrelin or hormone or whatever it is, I again, I'm not a doctor, but I, I, I know what it is, uh, that will pass. And so if he had just gone without his food for a half hour, he would not have been so ravenously hungry. And 
he could have prepared his own meal during that time and not had to bargain with his brother. There's all kinds of options. But because he's not thinking clearly, because he doesn't rein his body uh, in and control his passions, and he is rather subject to his passions than the other way around, making them subject to him, then he's willing to do things like barter things of value or relinquish, give up things of value just for something temporary. And you have to understand that that's really what's at stake here. I mean, this this idea here that he is going to die, he says, what good is a birthright to me if you're going to die? Well, okay, uh, but that's not really the case. He's not going to die. You know, and he says that verse 32, I am about to die. I don't need a birthright. But what is a birthright? The birthright is the right of the firstborn. This is the inheritance. And in that culture and in that society, the the firstborn son would stand to gain the far away majority of the inheritance from the father. He would get the primary blessing. He would get the primary wealth. The second born son would get a, a secondary blessing, but it wouldn't be as grandiose as the firstborns. He would get a portion of the inheritance, but it wouldn't be as much as the firstborn. So this is a big deal. And so again, it has to do with how we see life and can we look at things rationally? Can we step back from our circumstances and evaluate things and say, okay, I'm going to look at the bigger picture here. Certainly Esau's not doing that, Uh, you know, that he's for sure not doing that if he's willing to give up something of such value, because if by chance he lives through this uh, incident and we know that he will, Now he's just given up something that it's hard to assign a value to. It's hard to assign a price tag. His birthright is the blessing from his father. Usually a father is going to pronounce a a blessing on the son, and it's going to have to do with God bringing blessing on him and making his way prosperous and granting to him safety from his enemies and good crops and good flocks and wealth, which is measured that way, and a good family and lots of children and all of that, that's gone. Plus the wealth that's going to come when the father dies and, and then the mother dies. Uh, just, just in, you know, he gave up a lot. And he relinquishes something of such value. And then when you think about that, contrasting that to the value of a simple bowl of stew of red lentils soup, uh, there's no comparison. One has practically no value and the other has practically infinite value. And it's just utter foolishness. And all of it rests on how we deal with our natural appetites. So that's a sobering lesson. Uh, Then we see in verse 34, and this ends out the narrative for us here, that the profane person has no regard for the things of God. So here we read verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now it's all over. (laughs) It's all over. The meal has been consumed. You will have forgotten it in a little while, half hour, hour. You will not remember uh, the pain of of being famished and, and the growling stomach. That's all gone. The next day you're going to be hungry again. You're going to want another meal. It's all temporary. And in exchange, what did you get or what did you lose? You know, 
he got that temporary satisfaction of a full stomach and a, that sensation of being filled. And in exchange, he lost his birthright. And the birthright is tied up with the blessing of God. And that's why we say this, that the profane person has no regard for the things of God. He eats the bread, he eats the stew, he ate and drank and rose and went his way, and he despises birthright. That phrase there at the end is demonstrating to us that the birthright is really tied in with the things of the Lord. And so that's very important to understand that when he did that and he was willing to despise his birthright, he was essentially turning his back on God. When Isaac is going to bless him or whoever he's going to bless, because now he's not going to bless Esau, he's going to bless Jacob. But when you receive that blessing, okay, let's just keep it in the family immediately. So when Isaac does that, does Isaac have the ability to actually bring those things about, those blessings? No. Because Isaac is going to pronounce that that birthright blessing near his death, which means he knows that the way of all men is about to come upon him. He's about to go the way of all the earth, right? To borrow the language of scripture, he knows that that's coming. And now he's going to call down blessing, which he has no power to bring about. Whoever receives this birthright blessing, Isaac is powerless to do anything about it. So essentially this birthright is something that God chooses to honor many times, at least especially within the uh, the chosen of, of Abraham's descendants because of the promises that he'd made to Abraham. And so that stands out to us then, because to obtain the birthright blessing, you are going to have to have the participation of God And to essentially say the birthright doesn't mean anything to me, I don't care, all I want is this bowl of soup, you're essentially saying I don't really care if God blesses me or not. Well, we know a lot of people in the world act like that today and they believe that. They don't care. They they go about their lives as if the Lord doesn't exist. Uh, They think that, you know, you and I who believe in God are just, you know, believing some, some fairy tale. And they mock us and they despise us and they scorn us. And so to them, they would have no problem being like an Esau here. Yeah, what what good's a birthright? You can't guarantee anything. I mean, sign up a legal contract. You know, don't leave me out of that. Well, this is better than a legal contract. This is better than a living will. I mean, that gives you a little bit and, and maybe it gives you a lot, you know, from a physical standpoint, but a living will and testament, a legal contract upon your death. Uh, that is, you know, your guarantee for your inheritors, that can only give you physical things. Part of this birthright is the spiritual blessings that will come from God. There's no lawyer, there's no state, there's no court that can bring those things about. And so this really is an act of defiance uh, on, on God. The profane person has no regard for the things of God. He regards the blessings of the Lord as worthless. That's really what it means to despise something is to treat it as if it has no value or to hold it in contempt. Now, this word often describes an attitude of contempt for the things of God, such as the law and the sacrifices or the temple. Esau considered an enduring spiritual heritage as equal to a bowl of soup. And he did perhaps look back on this with regret, but only probably after he lost the blessing as well. 
It wasn't just the birthright. It was later on when, when he loses the blessing. And that's when he seeks it carefully with tears, as we read about back in Hebrews chapter 12. So let's not live as a profane person. Why? Because they act on impulse for the gratification of natural appetites. Let's learn to control our natural appetites and put them under our subjection rather than the other way around. And as we're striving not to live like that, uh, we see another action, and we saw that here at the very last verse, that the profane person has no regard for the things of God. Listen, value the Word of God. Value the spiritual promises. You know, we have every spiritual blessing every blessing in spiritual places in Christ, uh, you know, uh, we, we have so much and it's something that you can't fully grasp or comprehend. I mean, we're told in the gospels to lay up our treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal uh, something that is eternal. Uh, we're supposed to look to that. We're supposed to value that. We're supposed to understand that Jesus himself has gone into heaven. He's gone away from this earth. He's gone into heaven to prepare a place for us. He's actively preparing a place and he will come back and bring us with him so that where he is, we may be also. Don't despise those things. Don't hold those things in contempt and count them as no value. If you believe the promises of God, then those things are far more valuable than anything that we could experience or obtain or enjoy here on earth. And so we need to live like that. And to not live like that puts us in danger of having no regard for the things of God, despising the promises of God. Let's not be like that. We'll come back and pick up the text then as we jump into chapter 26 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.